This is happening in March, and so it wasn't long after the, uh, you know, dipping down into the 20s and low 30s that it's it's back up in the 40s now. So slosh and, right. you know, it's there's still piles of snow, but now it's 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 actually a nice day today. Right. So. Cool. Cool. Yeah, we have uh, no snow here <laughs> in Southern California. Whatever. Well, uh, you know, there's been a lot of cool paleo news lately, yeah. and actually just yesterday my my inbox started filling up and my Facebook page was getting posted with a strange prehistoric shark. And of course, if it's strange and prehistoric and it's a shark, people got to let me know. And I didn't know about this one, man. Well, Sometimes I hear Can you admit coming. that I was the first one that sent an email about it? You were. Thank you. I do you. admit that, Thank Dave. you. So you must be tuned in to uh, the Paleo News. And we were talking about a very bizarre pelagic shark, apparently, found in the Cretaceous rocks of Mexico, no less, a kilo lamna. Right. And, and the weird thing is, is that it's sideways, it's pectoral fins, right? Right, right. Are the like pectoral. massively wide and thin. Like long. A, they're long and thin. Like, a, like imagine a manta ray's uh, wings, but really, really thin, kind of like a, well, like, uh, like a Learjet. An airplane. Yeah. Yeah, like an airplane, almost like a glider. Yeah. Literally like a glider, but... Now, Dave, here's the nerdy thing. Right. So I immediately look at this shark. It's got those pectoral fins, but you know what it's lacking? Um, a credit card? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's got no pelvic fins. None. Pelvic there's fins. nothing there. Oh, you mean in the back? You mean where the claspers the are? Well, yeah, there's nothing there. What? Well, how do you know it's not missing in the fossil record? Well, that's why I've been trying to look closely at the fossil, right. you know, the paper itself. And I sent it on to J.P. Hodnett. Oh, great. And to some other people. And I said, check this out. But look, there are no pelvic fins well, on this. Let me ask you, are there any other uh, sharks in the evolutionary history that do not have pelvic fins? I thought you'd learned this over the ages. Uh, <laughs> you know which shark group it is? It's the Eugeniodontids, which are what the buzzsaw shark belongs to. The buzzsaw shark. Those and when I talked to paleontologists, they don't have pelvic fins. Nope, nope. The Eugene, the whole group do not. And so this is a another shark that doesn't have pelvic fins. And if you take away the pelvic fins, you don't know. You don't have any sexual reproduction. So these have either. Evolved well, away no, completely. Of course, you have sexual reproduction. You don't. Well, yeah, I mean, you, but you, not, no, no, you right. paleontologists can't tell if it's the sex, if it's missing these pectoral. Right, but every shark that we know of, and every chondrichthyes, every cartilaginous fish right. has the 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 naughty bits, the cloaca and the claspers. Every single shark has that. Of course, every single duh. every single ratfish has it. Duh, and they're 
except for the Eugenio Dantes. There's nothing there. So it's like, wait, wait, wait. You mean there's nothing opening. there as far as Finns or nothing there as far as a cloaca? What are you talking about? There's nothing there with both the cloaca what? and the Finns. Wait, well, there's wait, no... wait, wait. How do they have sexual reproduction then? You have to have well, a there's hole. Got... <laughs> well, there's, they have to be reproducing as bony fish do with broadcast spawning oh okay gotcha it's not internal fertilization right it's all this broadcast and so anyways (laughs) i'm looking at that i'm nerding out going wait this harkens back it actually looks like it looks like an Enneopterygian, which is another weird group and right but cretaceous is really late in the fossil record yeah Helicoprion so was from the what? Silurian? Paleozoic. Paleozoic Permian. Permian. Oh, so right. This is very late Cretaceous. Uh, so it's kind of mind blowing. Like 100 million and, years ago? A little bit more than that? Something like that? You know, I don't know the exact age. Probably in the 80 million years. And what's the name of this shark? Aquilo Lemna. Aquilo has got to mean aqua. Right. Right? Aquilo. And, uh, and Lamna being one of the Lamnid sharks. And what do you think is the reason for these uh, Learjet wings? I think it was. Uh, their theory is that it's a planktonic feeder gliding through the water and just sort of zipping around. And it's got a kind of high-speed tail on it, but it must be zipping through the water like a glider. And actually, they didn't find any teeth at all, I guess. Right. I have to dive deeper into this paper. Right, right. So... And what happens is they have the popular news articles that yeah. are out there. And then if you want to read the scientific paper, you behind a paywall. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right, right. You got to dive so, in So uh, maybe uh, Paleo Nerds needs to, uh, you know, cough up and Dave can uh, join the group and uh, pay pay the bill for us. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> you know, it's weird is I am your co-host and we have discussed so many different fish genera and species and sharks and yeah and, yeah. and i forget half the stuff i gotta admit it i forget half of the stuff and i so, some stuff think like I, i've got the time scale down i can tell you you know when the permian was and when the when the mesozoic is and blah 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 but when it comes down to like i know the different sharks and fishes i i just get so lost and with with genus and species, we have to always go through that. Yeah, yeah. And with you, but you know what's weird is that you can remember two hours of dialogue with five different characters, and it's in your head from twenty years ago. Well, that's because I memorize it to the point to where I don't have to think about it; it just comes out. So, uh, yeah, Look, there's only so much room in the brain. Any professional can do a task. That if that you've done ten thousand times, you can do a task without having to think about it. That's right, the ten thousand hour rule. There you go. All right, so I want to transition into a really cool fossil, which kind of transitions into the topic for today. Okay. And that is the Oviraptor, which is a bird, an ancient bird, right? Yeah, it's a more yeah. All right, dinosaur. A dinosaur bird, and uh, they found one in China, dead, sitting on the nest with the actual embryos inside there you go it was the uh the mother child reunion yeah and just like <laughs> the mother that's a song the mother and child reunion. that's uh paul simon paul simon so the mother so the eggs were there but there was an embryonic there was actually the baby was there yes yes the right? babies were there and uh, oh man uh let's see here it's um it's an oviraptor from Mongolia. It's probably from the Red Cliffs. It's it Cretaceous. It is um, an oviraptor found in Gansu, South China. 
It's okay. unprecedented in history because it contains an image of the animal and its offspring, but its very behavior of, of brooding on the nest. There you go. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Those Chinese fossils, which kind of transitions into this birds, dinosaurs, birds are dinosaurs, birds are dinosaurs. Although I'm still curious, I think some ornithologists, some of the bird people still like don't completely buy into it and think the split is even further back. But we're talking birds today right? with an ornithologist, an extraordinary ornithologist who's an expert in corvids, which is a family of birds. Which is uh, ravens, crows, and jays. Right. And they have the brain power of, if you want to look on the graph, equal to a primate. So they are smart. They have theory of mind. They dream. They hope. They have desires. They make tools. They have plans. They have plans. <laughs> and They're waiting for me outside when I walk out yeah, now. Yeah. So I've tricked them, though. They don't know where I live yet. Oh, so, good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm talking about my ongoing raven experiment. Well, I want to ask. Which I'm dying to talk to. Yeah. I want to ask our guest. Yes. About the story he told about the guy who pissed off a bunch of ravens or crows and they ended up pooing on his side of the car windshield. Yeah. Do you know our guest? What's his name? John Marsliff. Uh, he's a professor down at the University of Washington. I've met him a few times. He's been here to catch a can. And he actually co-authored a book. Actually, a friend of mine illustrated his his uh, one of his books, Dog Days and Raven Nights. Oh. Uh, my friend Yvonne Zerbitz actually illustrated that for him. Fantastic. And uh, I'm going to ask him, and I really wonder, I'm wondering, since he's a contemporary crow bird guy, is if he's really a paleo nerd as well. So we'll find that out. I I I'm I don't know what the answer is well, going to we'll be. We'll find out. He may so, not he may not give a rat's behind about. Why don't you call our, him? You dial the the phone this time. You pick up the phone and you dial I? it. Okay. All right. I've just got the modern technology. Let's just do that thing. Call. I'm doing it right now. Hey, David Strassman. <laughs> meet John Marsler, professor of wildlife science at the University of Washington and an author of numerous popular books. I've hung out with John before in the past. He's been up to Ketchikan. So, hey, John, meet my ventriloquist buddy, David Strostin. Hey, good to meet you there, John. And the real question is, before we even hear your voices, are you a paleo nerd or just a bird nerd? I'm a bird nerd for sure. Maybe maybe a bit of a paleo nerd. How? How would you be a paleo? What, what do you like about the oldness of the planet? Well, I mean, it's great to have that perspective and see how far... Life has come over the, uh, the past millennia for sure. Um, I think the the root for me is the connection of birds to dinosaurs. Of course, they're certainly living dinosaurs today, ah. and uh, they exemplify all the greatness of dinosaurs by being able to have made it through mass extinctions and current extinction events. So they're a um, very stimulating and inspiring group of animals for me. Does that answer your question, Ray, you were going to ask? <laughs> well, I was going to ask a question. No, I, I've been hanging out with scientists for a good 20, 30 years, and I hang out with the paleontologists, and then I hang out with the ornithologists like yourself. And I remember early on, as the debate about the origins of birds became much clearer that you know, birds are coming right off the dinosaur branch, off of the, the uh, meat-eating dinosaurs, that there was a pushback, you know, there were people that, that you know, the, the ornithologists in particular that were not accepting this, that like, no, it was a different, it's, it's even deeper in the tree. 
Has that is the debate over in the ornithology crowd, or are there still some holdouts? Oh, there's still some holdouts for sure, uh, no doubt about that. But I, I think the the vast majority of ornithologists um, agree that that birds evolved from the um, Tyrannosaurus lineage, basically the um, the, the raptor raptors. End of things. Tell us why. What physiologically, just real quickly, why? I mean, we kind of know why, but well, I think the most compelling uh, answer to that is that many of these uh, early bird fossils went undiscovered in museums, having been classified as small dinosaurs of the Maniraptor and <laughs> oh. uh, lineage. So the the skeletal characteristics are quite similar. Um, the shoulder apparatus is is similar. The the toe apparatus is similar, and um, Functionally, when you just look at, uh, you know, what's left in the fossil record, which is a, you know, a small slice of overall um, aspects of the animal, um, they're, they're indistinguishable in many ways. And, And now with the explosion of fossils found in China that have feathers of varying degree, uh, whether they're dinosaurs or birds, that where you draw the line, I think, Ray, is what's still, um, you know, right. discussed a lot and right. not not settled. And I, I just welcome all the paleontologists into finally being ornithologists. <laughs> <laughs> but what's the That's what's, right. I like that. So but, but the paleontologists would, are now ornithologists. Yeah. But go ahead, Dave. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the contention that the ornithologists who still don't accept this theory? What do they say? What's their argument? Well, some do argue that it is a deeper split uh, coming off of somewhere in the maybe crocodiles and other more modern uh, reptiles, uh, rather than deep uh, back in the um, in the dinosaur lineage, but that was again right. based upon some um, bone criteria that really hasn't stood the test of time. I think for most of us, um, but when when your whole career is based upon making that argument, it's pretty hard to shift at the end of your career, and I think that's what <laughs> right. we're yeah. seeing. Right. You know, with, with some oh, yeah. of these so it's almost stubbornness. A, very stubborn. It's almost a generational uh, shift that happens. Well, John, I, I'm just curious a little bit about your, you know, we'll dive into all things Corbett here in just a second. But what, what's your background? Where, where did you grow up? Where, where you? How did you come to birds? What's your what's your backstory? Yeah, well, my dad was in the Navy, so we did move around a bit. Uh, um, you know, I was born in California, grew up mostly in South Carolina. And then after the Vietnam War, we moved to Kansas. Uh, when when dad does having no friends ring a bell, Ray? <laughs> I'm a service brat too, and I also lived in Kansas. Okay. Uh, but yeah, go on. Yeah, where where in Kansas were you? In from? Lawrence. Uh, when oh, when wow. Dad came back from Vietnam, they gave him a easy tour of duty at the university there. So that was a great blessing for me because uh, my two older brothers were kind of out of the house, and it was me with my folks and. Dad and I did a lot of hunting and fishing, and I had access to the KU Museum, and I had two fabulous um, high school teachers that I communicate with to this day, have published with, and those guys really got me onto nature in general, hiking as well as scientific observation of nature, and, um, you know, that spurred my interest for where I went to school in Montana to to focus more on wildlife and and teachers there focused me more on birds so it was a progression a winnowing of interest you know from from dinosaurs and and toads and bugs and wow. things down to birds so you went to bozeman is that where you went missoula to? oh uh, missoula yeah. okay over in uh, all right uh, the university of uh, montana yes. 
Wow. And now you are a professor of all things birds and you've been on PBS and you've uh, published so many books. What's the big deal with corvids and what are corvids? Well, do you have to ask that? Do you even have to ask that, Ray? Well, <laughs> Dave, Dave, this is for your benefit, sir. Uh, I, I probably could dance around you with Corviday. Oh, uh, yeah. wait, yeah, wait. Yeah. Here we, I'm sorry, John, this happens every now and then. Dave and I get into this thing. But, but John, can you tell us about Corvid? Sure. I mean, if you think about birds as being the kind of pinnacle of dinosaur evolution, Corvids, in my mind, are the pinnacle of bird evolution, uh, especially from the standpoint of their social behaviors, their um, intellect, and their ability to solve novel problems, live and exploit us as a, as a potential modern problem. You see, I can't even scare a crow. They come from miles around just to eat in my field and, and laugh in my face. And um, they are a group of birds, about 150 in the family, that include jays, nutcrackers, ravens, magpies, crows, and some of the other less familiar things like chuffs. What's so a chuff? Really... Wait, wait, what's a chuff? A chuff is a, it's a European and Asian uh, bird. There are two species, one that lives in sheep pastures, basically in Scotland and, and other uh, places. And then um, the alpine chuff lives up in the Himalayas and Alps. And they have a large brain size to body they weight. They do, they're more relation. like a jay, kind of a jay-like size, right. a little bigger. Um, they're interesting, um, pro, almost like a flicker, a, uh, a smart flicker that digs in the ground a lot. They're part of the Corvid family? They are, yep. Wow. Well, so I was amazed to find out that uh, ravens are actually the biggest songbird. I've never thought of ravens and, and uh, you know, Corvids being songbirds, but they're songbirds. Yeah, song... I mean, that's a bigger group they belong to, right? Right. It, it's it's a, over half of all the uh, the birds alive today are songbirds. And that's defined by musculature around their syrinx, the voice box that birds have. And they have more complex muscles so they can make uh, a greater diversity of sounds. And, and for what we know, they also all have a forebrain learning loop that allows them to hear and learn and modify sounds, uh, you know, before they utter them, basically, or as they're learning them. So they not only can make a lot of noise, they can learn from what they hear and incorporate that into their noise. Hmm. The word songbird doesn't sound like a scientific moniker, is it? It's a it's a moniker that's ascribed to the Passeriformes. Passeriformes would be the scientific uh, group that includes. And define that. a passerine bird. That's a passerine. Passerine bird, yes. Uh, it's a perching bird. Uh, is kind of another way to think uh, of it. It's a perching bird, so not a waterfowl or groundfowl. Um, right. You know, it's it is the more uh, recently evolved group of uh, birds, um, and they have diversified incredibly. Like I said, including half or more of all the living members of the of birds now. Yeah, my question here with with corvids: if I see a robin in my yard and I see a raven in my yard, I can just assume that the robin is dumb, right? And compared <laughs> to, is not going to be as clever. As the raven, the ravens just got a bigger brain. Ravens and crows have bigger brains. They, they have theory problems. of mind, Ray. They have theory <laughs> but, of mind. They know what but you're thinking. But the robin can't do that. But the robin can't can't do that. Well, the robins, you know, the, this is always a slippery slope, right? I would say, sure, if it, right. when it comes to flexibility and innovation, 
variety of communication. Um, the Raven's going to win that hands down. But if you wow. look at other things like the ability to use sensory information to find and locate worms underground, you know, the Robin's going to win that one. So their brains, okay. all these uh, birds' brains are evolved with what they need to solve in their environment problem-wise. And um, mm, the, yeah. the raven and the crow and the corvids in general, I think mainly because of their social nature and their long uh, lifespan, they their larger brain is advantageous to solve things that change over time, uh, that are variable over time, that require innovation. These are scavengers for uh, a large part, so you have to know what to eat and what to stay away from. Robin pretty much does the same thing every day. You know, it sings in the morning, goes down to your lawn and looks for worms and sings at night. Doesn't need to be as flexible as a as a raven yeah, or crow does. Yeah, I understand that, yeah. Now, the, the brain of a corvid, the brain of a crow and a raven, doesn't have the convolutions that we have in the mammalian brain, yet it has the ability to uh, have complex social behaviors. So... Why did the convolutions not evolve, do you think, or no? Uh, because that gives you more brain area per space. It, it does. Um, it does allow you to pack more into a given space. Uh, and that's a property also of um, the what's in those folds is a six-layered cortex in mammals. And birds don't have that either. Birds have a smooth outer uh, portion of their brain, as you say, there are still some layers there that are analogous, or so I should say homologous to ours, derived from the same embryonic uh, tissues. But most of the brain of the bird is not derived from the same embryonic tissue as ours. It's a different part. And so they have evolved analogous ways to solve the problem of getting a lot of computing power in a small space. And you would think that it would be even more important for a bird to do this because of the constraints to fly and being lightweight to fly. And so what birds have done, it appears, is they have a higher density of neurons in their brain than mammals do. Oh. So they pack more computing wiring, basically, in their brain than we do. And so they need huh. less size. And, I, you know, the, the convoluted outside, that's not a property of all vertebrates by any means. Mammals are somewhat unique in that respect. And um, you can solve the problem of um, having a lot of brain power uh, in other ways than just convolution like that. And birds have done that oh. by having kind of learning modules or um, sensory integration modules in their brain rather than this um, integration across layers uh, from the top down that we have. John, there was a recent paper comparing uh, ravens uh, paralleling great apes and social cognitive skills. Those are some colleagues of yours. I assume you, you're very familiar with the work. They're smarter than gorillas? Nate Emery and uh, Nikki Clayton, I think, are the uh, researchers in Oxford you're, you're referring to, and they're on parallel. And again, I think it's always um, appropriate when you think about comparing animals, look at the selective pressures in their environment. And um, apes and uh, an awful lot of primates evolved in fairly stable environments, tropical environments. Um, resources had to be obtained over large areas for sure. And so they needed spatial awareness and they live in groups. So they need to remember and remember individuals, remember how they were treated by mm -hmm. those individuals, who's related to whom. There's lots of pressure there to learn a lot about life uh, that the primates shared uh, with corvids. 
And so I wouldn't say one is necessarily smarter than the other, but I think it's a major right. step to say some of these birds are on par with them. And even... Well, how do they prove it in this? What was the experiment? Go ahead. They, they look at a lot of different experiments, typical psychological uh, experiments that were done on um, young children, apes, and, mm. and they were able to repeat these on crows. Thomas Bugnier and his colleagues in Austria have done a lot of this because they're at the Conrad Lawrence Institute where they house both apes and uh, corvids. So they can give them the same tests. Yeah. So tests like, um, do you share, will you work with another individual to obtain a joint reward rather than just trying to get it yourself? And they show that that birds, that the ravens and crows are able to do that just as well as uh, apes are, hmm. for one thing. Wasn't there recently a, uh, a delayed gratification, that famous experiment of giving the child uh, one lollipop now, but that was done- And they got two if they would wait? Yeah. That was just replicated with uh, crows or ravens? Yeah, crows and ravens are able to do that up to a point as well. There was one really great example of this delayed gratification. Not only that, but what part of the brain in the bird was used to during that time period. And that was the same, it was the analogous part in the crow's brain that is our prefrontal cortex. So again, that the higher cognitive center of our brain that you would think would come into play with, I got to think I got to wait because I'm going to get more. That's a lot that's going on in your brain, right, to make that decision, uh, not just something that's in front of you. And so with the crow that did that, they, they were able to use information that they had heard about or had, had participated in earlier to make a later decision. And that was shown to be uh, the part of the brain that's it's analogous to our prefrontal cortex. So they seem to not wow. only be doing things that we do, but doing it in the same mental way that we're doing it. Well, why do ravens and crows in particular get such a bad rap in our world why do we call them a, <laughs> why do they why, why do we call them a why? murder of crows an unkindness of ravens in western society that's a victorian I, that's a victorian nomenclature <laughs> game that was played in the 1800s dude <laughs> i don't know john's uh, dive deep into this topic, and uh, I've been uh, lucky enough to be reading his great one of his great books with Tony Angel in the company of crows and ravens. And you've uh, you've really studied this uh, how we look at ravens, and then conversely how the ravens are looking at us. But yeah, why do we get why do ravens get such a bad rap in Western thought? I think because they're good at taking advantage of us. To put it simply, um, they get what they want from us. And that ticks some people off. It, it makes other people, you know, go, wow, they did that. And others, it's like, damn, he got my corn or, you know, stole, <laughs> uh, stole whatever it is. I was trying to protect the, the macaw uh, Indians in, in Washington basically had salmon drying racks where they were curing their salmon. And at one point they were, at, and on one hand, they were worshiping the raven as a creator. And on the other hand, they were, they were trying to keep it from stealing their food. So this, this ability of this animal to really um, interact with us, to challenge us, has certainly um, given it both auras, I think, one of reverence and one of, of hatred, really, or, or at least a, a good competitor uh, with us. I wouldn't necessarily say hatred. 
Tell the right, story right, right. about the guy who uh, threw, pretended to throw the food, and then the ravens uh, got back at him in a very uh, special and dirty way. It was magpies, actually, in this case. Oh, Maggie's. But, but still, you know, another corvid and a social and big-brained corvid. And uh, this was a Swedish man, and his wife had been attracting the magpies around the house and was really enamored with them, taking food and knocking on her window for food and um, eventually ringing the doorbell to get food. And and the husband told me he wasn't so keen on this at all, and he acted like he threw a rock at him one time. And from that day on, basically, they shit on his car windshield every morning. And he was, you know, <laughs> delayed in getting to work every day by having to clean up the mess. So they, they can not only remember and um, associate ac action with us, but they can take uh, revenge, it seems like, in some cases as well. With a, with a person. With an because, individual person. And that's why you do so much research with your scientists and colleagues wearing masks. Right. Explain that. Well, we've done, um, we, this kind of started as, a, as kind of a joke, to be honest. We always thought that the crows around our campus that we studied a lot uh, were on to us. They they seemed to you know be wary when we came out because we'd been up to their nests or we had captured and tagged them in the past. So we decided we would test it and we wore a mask, a caveman looking mask, when we caught some birds. And then we were able to walk around campus with that mask and with a control, which was Dick Cheney, a control mask. And we take turns <laughs> walking around campus as the caveman or Cheney and see what the birds did. And um, boy, they responded really strongly to the caveman that we had captured them with, even though most of the birds responding weren't the ones we caught at all. So this was some sort of either observational learning initially, and then through time as this has continued up through six or seven years, most of the birds wow. that were scolding and responding to the caveman mass weren't even born. At that time. So they shared cultural information. They evolved a Generational. culture. They evolved a culture of hate for this caveman. And that continues. So there was a there were two masks. So the other one was Dick Cheney. What was Dick Cheney doing to him? He did nothing. He was just the control. So we, we walk around with both at you know different days basically to see. And they've responded to Cheney a bit more over time. Um, but they've consistently responded to the caveman. The response to Cheney's kind of up and down. I'm, how hmm. do you know? How do you know that they? I mean, they're obviously super intelligent. But how do you know that they're not saying that's a guy wearing a bad mask? That's not a bad guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I really, they, they must. Have, they must. I, I know it's not the property of the mask per se. We we did experiments with four other areas where we had six different masks that we molded off of our friends' faces with, with latex. And we made these accurate, you know, flexible masks. And one might have been dangerous, the, was the trapper at one site. And at another site in downtown Seattle, for example, that same mask didn't have anything to do with trapping. And they only respond to the trapping mask where it was used for trapping. Not where the person who trapped else. the bird was what you mean. Yes, but how do they? But can you tell the difference when when one of your colleagues is wearing a mask? Can you know? Can you know it's them, or do you go, "Oh my goodness, you're wearing a mask"? Can you yourself, John, tell the difference that when someone's wearing a mask or not? Well, of course you can see them. the mask of their own face. You, you can see yeah, the mask of their own face. Yeah. Yes, you can. What, what I'm trying yeah, to say absolutely. is, why can't the birds, which are super intelligent, yeah. why can't they distinguish? Oh. That is uh, research number two, wearing a mask. Yeah. 
that looks like him. Yeah, well, it could be. And they, and that's why we use the two masks uh, to make sure that it's not some property of a stiff face. They're both kind of bald right. heads. Um, right. And why we use so many different masks with different hair pieces, you know, uh, male and female, Asian and American. We had all different sorts of um, of, okay. of masks that we used. So you varied the experiment to get so many different controls and so much data that uh, your results are are, are well, well. He's a scientist. <laughs> he's a scientist. Well, yeah, but, uh, but you know, some people listening to this are not scientists, and, and well, yeah, 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 need yeah. to know the the process. Well, I mean, I, I would agree that uh, we were concerned about that, and so we had also all sorts of different people wear the same masks. And so we've got, you know, okay. people from 12 to 70 plus years old wearing the masks, um, all sorts of, di you know, throughout seasons, throughout years, uh, different right. people and different clothing and different walking styles and, and all of that we were concerned about. And the only consistent response is when you put on now on campus, if you put on that caveman mask, you're going to get attacked by some crows. <laughs> and this is now, right, we just finished right. year 15, and they're still responding. Wow. They're wow. still responding. Can I tell my story of my experiment Almost, now? almost, almost, Ray. <laughs> I got one more about his okay. experiment. I, I got Ray an experiment is, going on. Ray's been, he's been, he's got a Corvid experiment. I'm dying. He's, he's a scientist. He's this. itching. He's itching. Um, you said in one of your lectures, John, that you did experiments where you found that crows recognize songs while they're sleeping. That, to me, sounds absolutely amazing, but also impossibly... How do you scientifically come to that conclusion? It just seems an impossible conclusion. So it's it's actually a songbird study, not on crows or ravens. It oh, was okay. done with All other right. song learning. And what the scientists showed was that the brain activity... Uh, was uh, the, the neurons that fired as individuals were singing during the day. Those same neurons in places in the brain were firing as the birds were in deep sleep at night. So they were practicing. But were they under an MRI? Were they, were, did they have magnetic resonating at the time they were sleeping? I mean, isn't that changing the... I mean, you, you injected glucose into your ravens, right? And then after the fact, within 20-minute window... You put them through the MRI and you saw what areas had residual glucose, but it wasn't at the time of the experiment. So not, as being a non-scientist, I say, well, th th that's flawed. Well, let's step back first. The, the song learning one was with neurons that were actually wired up. And so that was very oh, invasive, okay. right, but they right, were right, able right. to look and see the, the firing pattern. In our work, uh, it's with crows and PET imaging, but yes, a glucose um, substitute. This glucose is metabolized in, in the brain where there's a lot of um, synaptic activity, a lot of communication among nerve cells. Okay, that draws energy there. This glucose substitute that we give the birds can't be metabolized, so it stays there until it radioactively oh. decays. And oh. so it's present. How long does that take? It, it, so 30,000 years? <laughs> no, it's one day, fortunately. <laughs> Right, but that's right. why we have to look in within 20 minutes while Got there's still it. enough of Got it there it. to okay. detect. That explains yeah. it. That explains that. Okay. Um, now, my buddy Ray here uh, has been messing with Mother Nature, and I've been really, really um, disturbed that uh, he's he's ruined the entire raving ecosystem <laughs> of Ketchikan, Alaska. Well, so... 
tell John what you've been doing. It's actually fascinating, Ray. I'm well, let me, let, me, let me preface this with, uh, John, you, were, you did a book with the Yvonne Zerbitz, and you came up here. Uh, she's a good friend of yeah. mine, and she, you came up and uh, did a book signing uh, with her, with your, uh, the book um, Dog Days and Raven Nights. Yeah. And I got to meet you then. We had you over the house. We drank tequila, apparently. You remember that. <laughs> I do um, remember that. But I remember you also talking about uh, ravens and their territories, and you thought it was kind of unusual because in our town here in Ketchikan, where we have these, you know, there's three major sculptures of uh, ravens just in our in our downtown, and then uh, Saxman has another 10 out there. And, and you, so a lot of people are really fascinated with ravens up here because it's so deeply ingrained in the culture they're around us, like I said. But you also said that ravens and crows don't overlap in their territories a lot. And over the years, and this has been 10 years since you've been up here, I've been just kind of looking and anecdotally, I've noticed that there's ravens in one part of town, there's crows in another part of town. And then with this recent pandemic where I was stuck, I've been stuck on this island for a solid year now. And every morning my wife and I get up, we have coffee and looking out the window and just like clockwork every morning, there's one raven that comes down the hill, flies over the house and goes down. Then I realized after reading your book, wait, they, they mate for life. And I now I've been noticing it's Mr. and Mrs. Raven. They come down just like clockwork every morning. And they're in the same pattern that I'm on. I'm getting up, they're coming down the hill, they're surveying. But I noticed that they're going down to this one area that is really theirs. So it's a mated pair, apparently. So in January, I started this experiment inspired by some of your work. I thought, well, you know, if I just go down to that one area that they're all going down to and they meet their raven friends in the morning, and if I leave a little treat, a chicken thigh bone or something, in the same spot every day, how many days will it be before they're waiting for mm -hmm. me? And it took about five or six days by the time I would just leave in the same spot. They had noticed me, and they would be the same two. They would, I think they're the ones for in the morning would see me in that spot, and by that time, but now I'm three and a half months into this, <laughs> and now I'm right, and at this point, there's a spot where the ravens don't, um, they overlap with the crows down in this breakwater. Yep. So the crows so have this territory there. You're over saying here. they're both there? They're both there. So I have both of these corvids, and I'm only trying to feed the ravens, right? So I have to get through. Now I've seen this knowledge of me showing up after lunch, spread through all the raven groups and now i can't really literally can't walk through town without them expecting me to like you know bring peanut but i bring peanuts to wait, them wait, now. when you Chicken say through pies. town you mean anywhere in town or just this place well right? actually i've decided that if i walk all the way back to my house treating them all the way they're going to figure out where yeah. i live and they're going to start tapping yeah, on my not window a good idea. i don't i don't want that because i've read your book i know what happens so they don't i stop feeding them at a certain point but now i literally have to run I go down to the breakwater, I, and they, the ravens and the crows act very differently. The ravens are much more cautious. Yeah. I have to turn around to leave a treat mm. for them. The crows, they don't mm. care. They mob, yeah. as you said. So if they see me feeding a, a raven at all, the crows are immediately really? over there, and they come in a huge wave. But ravens are calling. twice the size of crows. Why would but, they be And so you can cautious? easily see the size difference. I have a lot of photos of them side by side. Ravens are twice the size, same, as, same genus, different species, Corvus corax and Corvus brachyrhynchus. But, John, am I messing with the ecosystem here? But these are, these are town birds, though. 
they're and already messed with. And I already know that there's a crowd that, that ha- hangs but out Rick, down wait, by wait, the I gotta say one thing. Bar. You have to take your caveman mask off right now. <laughs> but the other thing I did the other day, if I was, I've always worn the same clothes. I switched hats. Uh-huh. So I wore a white hat the other day to see, and they know yeah. me. And sometimes I see them flying by me. And I, it's like being followed by a drone through town because I see them. They pop all through town. They see me. Oh, there he is. There he is. And sometimes they'll fly right in front of me and literally look me in the eye to see if I'm that guy. And then they go, <laughs> wait. And they know my path. So, but am I messing with it? And do they like peanuts? And I don't know. So uh, well, I don't, is there anything I can actually report back to you that might be of interest? Yeah, I don't think you're messing with it that much. Um, I mean, these birds key in on all sorts of reliable sources, right? And you've become a reliable resource for them. So they they know you and they're going to keep track of what you're doing because it pays off. Eventually, what will be interesting is how, when they stop following you, if you don't feed them and, and how long that takes uh, to shift their behavior. Mm. Um, the fact that they're interacting with crows, really, it's not unusual. It's just that it did seem like uh, in in lots of places, because crows mob ravens because uh, they're nest predators of crows, that uh, ravens won't settle, and it's hard to be a territorial raven where there's a lot of crows harassing you all the time. Um, it's just hard to do your business. But there are lots of situations where they feed together at uh, rich food sources, like um, parts of the intertidal. Fishing dog. Fishing dog, for sure. Ray troll walking around. You know, they're going to <laughs> they're going to focus in on those reliable food sources, for sure. And it will, the other thing to watch out for will be if the, if the birds start um, giving you more cues that they're there. We, we observed with people that fed crows here that they would start to fly right over them and actually tap them on the shoulder or the head even. And land in that's, front of them. That's and what wait. I've seen already. They're doing that. I, I've seen them. They've already kind of every now and then they're like, "Hey, they see me," and they'll, like I said, fly in front of me. But I really am trying to keep it to the ravens, and I'm trying to be keep those crows mm-hmm. back. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's it's the, well, the crows have say, no hesitation. John, John, did you say that crows and ravens can recognize an upside down face? They can. So yeah, he could walk upside oh. down. That would be a that would be a great experiment. <laughs> So they have that ability to to see a face or parts of a face and know that that's John's nose, that's Ray's beard, this is my bald head. I, I think they actually in, they can mentally invert the image, um, and that's been shown now with some other birds uh, more uh, directly than with our experiments. But ours did recognize the upside. We we made an upside down mask, and they recognized that. And some uh-huh. birds even turned their heads upside down and looked at us. But evidently, mentally, they can also uh, invert images, you know, because a bird sees things from many different angles, right? It's Sometimes it's the drone above you, and sometimes it's walking on the ground below you. So it makes sense that they could do that, but it surprised me when they did. Begun to recognize individual ravens mm-hmm. from like their tattered tails mm-hmm. and or their wings that were their missing feathers. But then a friend pointed out um, that uh, they regrow their tail feathers and their their flight feathers all the time, so that 
you know, I, I thought I knew these individuals just by the tail feathers, but uh, it, does that happen? They regrow their their wings and their tails all the time? They, not all the time. They they molt once a year. And, and that's usually at the end of the breeding season when ravens and crows molt their tails first and then parts of their wing. Um, if they're pulled out, if the feather's pulled out, which it does happen with these birds because they're, you know, uh, tussling around for food or dealing with eagles and other things, um, that they will grow those once they're pulled out. But otherwise, it's just an annual thing. So you can see a feather uh, signal to a bird for quite a while, yeah. Yeah, there's there's a couple in particular I've noticed these individuals that just have completely, like their tails are yeah. gone, they're ragged. But I also noticed that there, there are pairs that they do mate for life, but then I was reading about helper crows and helper ravens, corvids, so sometimes I see three, and I'm assuming that maybe it's a young adult that's hanging with mom and dad. Is that a wrong assumption? Not or? with ravens, probably. It is probably wrong with ravens. Um, the the hmm. pair is very aggressive and drives the young out of the territory after about a month when they leave the nest, uh, maybe maybe two months at the outset. And crows, though, it is possible and uh, fairly frequent, uh, especially in the eastern population of crows here in the U.S., um, but your crows up there are going to be like ours in Seattle uh, for the most part. And that is if they've got plenty of space to move into, which might be somewhat limited up there, given, you know, there's a lot of wildland where crows aren't really um, that prolific, um, that you might get helpers there. Maybe a, a one or two, usually male offspring that can't establish mm. a territory because it takes status and dominance to get the territory. And so they will either float and be a non-breeder and move around a lot, or they'll stick at home and help the parents raise the next brood and get a little bit of genetic representation that way. Um, is it true that uh, ravens are the only bird that is found on all continents, including Antarctica? It's not on Antarctica. There are no corvids ah. on Antarctica, but it is found okay. everywhere else. It's got to be one of the most uh, amazing distributions. I mean, from... I, I saw them at Barrow, Alaska in 22 below zero, hanging around husky, a bunch of huskies. Uh -huh. Scavenging food and poop. Yeah. The weird thing was, though, I looked at those legs, and I here I am dressed in um, wolf fur and, and massive, you know, moon boots. And I look at those little tiny legs, and it was 22 below mm -hmm. without windshield. I'm thinking, how is it they don't freeze? Well, they're, those legs are just about ambient temperature, so they're not losing any heat out of them. They have a countercurrent uh. exchange mechanism in their legs so that they send warm blood down from the body that's cooled by the cold blood coming up from the feet, and it keeps the feet at near ambient temperature so they don't get... Well, I mean, when you freeze like a husky's paw because they sweat through their paws right they'll get wet and they will freeze to the ice at times so you booty them up mm. but the right. the birds don't allow their feet to get warm so they don't uh melt anything and oh. they don't freeze in that way so they Lots. they are tolerant of the cold and then they can shunt uh blood down there to warm up like putting on a pair of electric socks when they need to but they don't um they don't waste energy by letting it flow out of those feet. One thing we haven't discussed is what is the physiological difference between a raven and a crow beside the size? Physiologically, I would say um, not much, if anything. I mean, they are, they are the really? same body plan. 
and same 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 genus, different but, species, but, but, but I mean yeah. same beak and same uh, same everything. Well, physically they are different. The beaks are much smaller and sharper on a crow, and on a raven they're huge. And actually, the the voice of the raven is deep and guttural, and the crow is always. And ravens could do all kinds yeah. of sounds, including that weird, what is that water dripping sound they do? You know, it's like a dripping thing. And actually, I'm just curious, too, in all the experiments that you've done, ravens can actually learn to talk? Ravens can. Oh, yeah. And crows and magpies. They can mimic and animals magpies. and people's speech. Yeah. Well, have you ever had one just out of the blue, like repeat something that you said and you weren't trying to train it or you heard it? Like do the bark of a dog or something like I've that. I've heard I've heard like chicken calls and and dog barking, but never a spontaneous utterance of of uh, of a human never more. language. Yeah, I was going to say I, that. I have you never beat more. me to it, damn you! I mean, I, I have never that on tape. Nevermore. You have one saying nevermore. I on do uh, from a, from a bird in, that a woman raised in Colorado, and it's you know I mean yeah it sounds. Sounds we'll fun. have to get that. Can we get that from you for the for our website? Sure. So, getting back to uh, the ravens uh, shoving their their uh, their offspring off into the world so quickly, that I've posted a few of my raven pictures because I see them all the time now, and then people comment, "Hey, why do you never see baby ravens?" Yeah. You know, and there's always that comment because you never see them because there's not small birds flying with it. So, what's that all about? They 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 develop. Do they have babies every year and every year they're booting them out like right away and they're, they're fully they're adult size? Yeah, pretty much. Um, they try to have them every year. You know, the, as with most birds, uh, nest failure is not uncommon. And um, but when the young leave the nest, they are basically full size. Their tails are a little shorter and their eyes mm. are blue and their mouth lining is pink. So you can see that oh, in do. a young bird uh, for the next uh, year. You can see the pink mouth lining and some uh, partial pink in their mouth even for several years. Versus the, Why is that? It's, it seems to be under some sort of hormonal control, and it's regulated. It's a pigment? It, it's, uh, it's pigment. It it's must be the melanophores that are expressing different pigment in their, in their throat and mouth lining. And as they get dominant that turns to black. We had birds, Bern Heinrich and I uh, had birds in captivity that if they were one year in their first year and they were the dominant in our aviary, their mouths turned black right away. And others wow. for several years that were not dominant, but we held them in a captive situation, they never got a black mouth. So we know it's related oh. to dominance, which in the wild, usually after a couple of years, you've, you've attained dominant status and your mouth is all black. Could it be a display? I think it is used as a display by the young birds, for sure, to indicate to their parents, you know, hey, here's a target for food, like the red spot on a gull's bill. And for the adults... And does black help them retain warmth? Uh, it could. Um, it could definitely help with that. But I think it's, it's a display in the adults as well. You see a lot of their displays. They open their mouth widely when they're making those weird calls we were talking about. And everybody, all the other ravens that are around... Uh, carcass or whatever the food source is concentrated, uh, they can look and they see that black mouth and they know, okay, we're not going to mess with this. Or, hey, he's a challenger. I'm going to go mess with him if I've also got a black mouth. Well, you know, with uh, this 
this group of Ravens that I've been hanging out with for three months now, Mr. and Mrs. Raven go down the hill. They join the gang down there. There's about 14 or 16. I've counted 16 Ravens okay. uh, in this one group at any one time. They all go down there. They all seem to meet mm-hmm. down there. They, they're roosting separately, it seems, because there's a group that comes down from another area of uh, the hill. But is there a dominant uh, relationship going on there? Is there, between all of them, will there be a couple or will there be one dominant, like everybody like backs off because, uh-oh, he's here? She's here. Well, that's something you can observe if you put out maybe something a little bit uh, bigger than just a peanut um, to see how they would interact with that. Maybe like a salmon carcass one day uh, just to see the interaction there. And my guess is whatever pair is closest to that spot, if it's your pair or some other that's down there, they're going to be the king and queen of that of that turf. Oh, it's not like it shifts. It's like who's there and who can defend it. It will initially, the first bird that gets to that food will, will act like it's the dominant and try to exclude everybody. But again, looking at mouth lining or posturing or, or eventually a fight, that will be settled quickly. And that territorial pair that, that is closest to that spot or maybe even includes it in their territory, they will be the, the top uh, ravens there. I wonder if these ravens already, the, the two that I'm talking about, already feel like they own me. <laughs> You know, well, they're so. certainly using you, Ray. <laughs> they are when, when they, st- John, when they start whispering you commands, uh, then then you know yeah. it's gone too far, Ray. Uh, it's <laughs> gone too far, John. Your grad student, Dr. Kaylee Swift, has done a lot of research uh, and found that that ravens or crows, I think crows, have funerals. Yeah, can you ex- expand upon that? Yeah, uh, mm. what we found was that well, we. This has been known for a long time, and it's been reported by lots of people that see a gathering of crows around a dead crow. And, um, you know, I've seen it when a hawk gets one or when a a car hits one. There's there's an association there of could be hundreds of crows. And we always wondered what was going on. Were they learning about danger? Were they mourning the loss of a you know, were they hungry? Were they hungry? <laughs> yeah. They they don't usually eat it, so it probably isn't that. But there's a lot of other things, you know, like vying for that animal's mate or territory, or um, right. or if that's been your mate for 20 years, you know, you probably have a emotional response when you see that, just like we would. So uh, mm. Kaylee was able to test some of that in experiments uh, to show that. When uh, the the crows gather at a dead, we we use taxidermy mounted crows that look like they were dead. We place them out and Mm. we would see who gathered and uh, what sort of um, association they made with things around the dead. They learned that if somebody was around the dead holding it, for example, that they then avoided uh, that person and and, uh, saw them as a dangerous person, basically, somehow associated with that death which is why you should never pick up a dead crow if you're out there and you see one, because the other crows that see you do that are going to assume that you're part of the reason for that death and going to make your life challenging (laughs) going forward. The other thing we then learned was that um, there's a lot of different motivations of a crow when it comes into these uh, to see a dead bird. There's territorial displays, there's copulation that occurs, there's fighting, there's lots of different... um, basically energy that's being released in response to that stimulus. Uh, and some of it is um, a response to danger. Some of it's response to other birds around it or potential intruder to our territory, potential mate, all kinds of weird things happen when you put out a dead crow. So it's a very 
we we don't want to be anthropomorphic, but we can assume it's an emotional response. Well, we we brought well, it's also a cultural response. Well, I mean, is it emotional? Do you think it's emotion? I can't prove that it's emotion, but I can prove that they did learn and they used their hippocampus in our in our brain imaging work. We showed that when the bird looked out and saw a dead crow or a person holding a dead crow in our experiments, if they saw a person, they used their hippocampus, which was the part of the brain that we use to make social memories and, and spatial memories. So I think they're learning where and who's associated with danger. And the other thing, when they just see a dead crow, the part of their brain that was activated is analogous to our prefrontal cortex. So they're really thinking deeply about that situation. It wasn't the amygdala, mm or other parts of the brain that are clearly associated with emotional responses. That, that if we had seen that, I'd be comfortable saying it's an emotional response. But, but that said, we also didn't do the experiment where we showed an individual a known dead bird. These were just random you know, taxidermy right. mounts that, that we made, and they were we, we could potentially anesthetize a bird's mate and show that to them while we're imaging them, but... We just haven't gone. But that way. sounds cruel. Yeah. yeah, no, you don't want to do that. Do you ever do you ever record the birds or figure out kind of language or at all with the birds and play that back to them and like do the, how do they respond to that? grad student who's been working on crows and is just getting ready to finish up Loma Pendergraf has studied food related calls. I uh, recorded all the vocalizations at dogs. There you go. <laughs> Vocalization on cue. Wait, is that a crow <laughs> imitating a dog? It's a crow, yeah. It's, it's not a, yeah, that's what it was. So you're doing an experiment, one of your students is doing an experiment with peanuts and as well and finding out interesting things about their vocalizations. Yeah, what, what Loma did was record the vocalizations that crows give when they find a few peanuts or a big bunch. And what he found was that um, there was no clear call that indicated, hey, come and get it, uh, for example, which we kind of thought there was when you listen to them and watch them. We couldn't demonstrate that. What he found was that, one, there's a tremendous variety of calls, gradations in the call. It all sounds like a call, but there's the number of them, the 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 pitch that they're giving at, how long they're they're strung out uh, in the call, and um, lots of different parameters that he measured about the calls, and they are probably highly dependent upon context. So the problem with all of these birds to try to understand their vocalizations is you have to know what the situation is very precisely when they give a call. You know, is there another bird around? Is it a bird they know? Uh, what time of the year is it? What have they done just prior to making this call? Uh, what we discovered was that most of the calls that are given there are aggressive, and they're indicating, I'm going to defend this food, so you need to just get out of here. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, yesterday I was walking, I, I recorded this. I have it on my iPhone. I love these iPhones because I do an instant voice recording. So I was walking down the creek, and there was a raven made a noise right above me, and I started recording it. And uh, I heard it kind of talking back and forth with another mm -hmm. raven who seemed to be responding up the hill. And then I played it back to them too. So when I've done this and, and played back their own recording so I can do it immediately so the, the raven hears what it just mm -hmm. said, 
they seem to be very confused by that. You know, looking, wait, that's what I just said. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, I mean, we, well, I'm going to pose a question to both you guys. We, we have evidence of language in, in many different species, dolphins, primates, birds. I'm not talking about just a repetitive songbird uh, in the field, but corvids. Why haven't we distinguished just the a rudimentary basis for language, or are they just sounds that are so simple that there isn't language? I really think there's a language, um, and we've been criticized on using that term in the past, but we've shown their syntax, uh, the order in which you give calls is important. We've shown that the calls are arbitrary. It's not a scream that indicates, you know, fear, a primal scream, which is, you know, more of the stimulus response. But, you know, why do they quirk instead of, uh, you know, bark? For example, they're, they're arbitrary sounds that they make that mean particular things. And we do know the basic, you know, 10 to 20 calls that crows and ravens give and what their general meaning is. Danger, uh, contact with a territorial bird, uh, female-only calls. So we, we do know mm. something about it, but the, what makes these animals extremely difficult to fully understand is the gradation that they use in their calls. One each individual's but with voice. But can't you with audio analyze it with audio and, and get and see those gradations? Yeah, well, we measure it all. We can do that, but trying to understand how that relates to a piece of information they're giving is it's really difficult. We we can show that that individuals have unique vocal signatures, so they can tell oh. one another from that just like we can in our voices. But, um, you know, what does it mean when they speak a little higher pitch versus lower pitch, a longer drawn out call versus a shorter call? Hey, if you can figure it out, let's let's do this. But and if they're using a phone, it's a phone call. <laughs> <sighs> Have you, what do you guys what do you guys think about that uh, video? Sorry, of, sorry. What do you guys think about that video of the person who has this? computer mat and this dog goes over and steps randomly on i want a treat i want to go out i love you that's got to be just pavlov's conditioned response that's not a dog forming a language and and, and speaking our language they know the signals that we use and what they mean and from that standpoint if they have a, a way to express those same signals back they do it i mean the best there's there's some good examples. The gray parrot Alex that um, that was studied by Irene Pepperberg. That bird learned to say what color an object was, what shape it was, which ones were similar and different, and used our language to convey very uh, detailed messages to the experimenters mm. in very controlled scientific ways. The other thing is we've got great information from former pet crows and ravens that escaped. And learn the voice of the of somebody in the household, the mother or father, usually who's raising them, and then use that voice to call the kids home, or to tell the dogs to sit <laughs> and stay, and it works perfectly. And I've got numerous wow. um, observations, including from Conrad Lorenz and other. You know, he's a Nobel Prize winner in in animal behavior, who observed this uh, sorts of behavior. So they they learn the signal. 
and what it means, and then they can use it to invoke that same response in somebody. Now, that means you understand the language. It doesn't mean you're yeah. just giving a rote response back. I mean, maybe they enjoy that rote action, but they know it well enough to, to give it so we have evidence. We have evidence that they can form a, a language and syntax. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you this, John. In all the years, you must have heard every kind of crow and raven and corvid story. I was going to ask the same thing. What's the coolest, but, weirdest stuff? What, but but uh, you've heard all these things. But yeah, and I'm sure there's some absolutely astounding ones because you know I've I've been interacting with these birds and I'm astounded. But you personally have also raised and released and captured, and you've had every kind of interaction with uh, our bird, our fine feathered friends. What is your most profoundly like? Holy whoa! What's the moment for you? where you just were astounded by a bird and it's the memory you'll always have. Yeah, there's, um, you know, I whenever I raise the birds, we try to keep them as natural as possible. So I never formed a tight personal relationship with an individual uh, that I raised from young. We raised hundreds of them. But the two things stand out to me. One, the response of these birds on our campus, the American crows, for now over a decade um, that have recognized me when I wear a particular face and respond to me and trust one another that that response is accurate because they, they trust the ones who are scolding saying this is dangerous without them ever having any <clears throat> personal experience with that danger. And so they, they take it that that, that, that that is a trusted bit of information, this is a trusted colleague, and I'm going to now hate this person and scold every time I see him as well. And, and to me, that ability, and that ability to, to pass that culture on through time is fascinating to me. Yeah, but that's for a danger. That's for a, a threat. Is, does it, is the inverse true of someone who's kind that feeds? Yes, and, and even better, they get gifts. I have not been gifted by a crow. Oh, right, I've heard about the gifting. But a lot of people have, and... Um, how purposeful that is, I'm still not positive. I think it's purposeful. I don't know the meaning of it fully, but I think it's some sort of way that these birds are bonding with this person um, and not necessarily rewarding them, but certainly feeling they're a valued um, part of their society. And and maybe, Ray, you'll get a, get a gift of some interesting shell or something from that raven if you keep feeding mm. it like that. And that will be profound. Um, for For me... The connection to an individual, we, we started this study of ravens in Yellowstone now for a year, going, uh, going on a okay. year. We have 70 birds that we've tagged up there, and I can sit down on my computer and see where they've been and what they're doing on a daily basis because they, they do have phone calls. They, they do enter their information through the cell network for us to keep track of them. Ah, and uh, right. one bird there in particular— How long do those transmitters last? Potentially— Decades. They're solar powered, uh, so they keep oh. recharging. Oh. One bird there has been so intriguing and so interesting to me, and the things I've seen it do have been pretty phenomenal. It's a real beggar, and it does ring a bell for food from a person who works at a, at a restaurant and feeds it roast beef. So I've seen it do that. I've seen it come and play with the kids at the one-room school building there um, at recess and slide on the snow with them and catch food from them. And I followed her into the wilderness and 
and found the lieutenant governor of South Dakota uh, at his cabin with her. So this bird is a real ambassador uh, for people. It's mm. a total 70% of her time is spent um, scrounging from people, 70% of all of her time that we've been able to document. How do you know it's a her? How can you tell a yeah, her? Yeah, everybody, it, it turned out this was a, this was a um, mascot of the town, and they thought it was a he. But she's small. Yeah. She's got a small bill. She's small weight, lightweight, um, and all the characteristics of a female. Plus, she gives a knocking call. Some of the dripping that you described earlier, some of that is a form of knocking that only females give. So I'm sorry, is she a raven or? or she's a, a raven. Okay. Yeah. Uh, do you, did you give her a name? Do you give your subjects well, names? Well, that's a great question. Number 339. <laughs> <laughs> no, is it scientists? I've got names for my readers. Yeah, she's, but... uh, she's 7523, but everybody in town <laughs> everybody in town called her Steve. They they had her. She was Steve. their friend before I caught her. I had no idea that she was their friend till I I upset a few of them by putting bands in a backpack transmitter on her. Do you wear masks when you catch these uh, Yellowstone ravens? No, we haven't. Um, it's a hassle to do that. And th so far, it seems fine. I, I can go up to Steve. I she, They called her Steve. I, I have to tell them it's probably Stevie. But I go up to Stevie and she'll sit right next to you and, you know, go through all of her normal uh, begging sorts of behaviors. So why would that raven, uh, that just is a, a raven that's acclimated to humans? Well, they're individuals. Yeah. They begin to step out and they begin to some interact. And like I said, I've got a couple, uh, I call them Hugen and Munich, yeah. uh, the Norwegian ones that reported to Odin. We affect their culture, they affect our culture. These birds will walk up to you and look you in the eye and and try yeah. to engage, just like you're saying, Ray. They will, they make the um, overture first. And if you respond, yeah. then they keep going with that. Because some of our birds don't deal with people at all. They deal with wolves, or some of them deal with, with pumas. And they have a different interaction there. But some of them are real human specialists. And what makes it, what makes it I'm not sure. So they'll form a symbiotic relationship with a puma or a wolf because they can get scraps? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, It's more of a parasitic relationship. Oh. But yes, oh. they there are some that that scavenge widely from wolves and and pumas and others not so much. Have you ever had a mystical moment or somebody who's told you about? I know that you tell a story in your book here with uh, Tony about him being visited by a crow on the day that one of his best friends mm -hmm. died. Have you heard of these kind of beyond the grave uh, moments? Sorry. So wait, wait, no, no, David. Many times. It is it is not an unusual story at all. Convince me. All I can say is that, uh, and, and we wrote about it in The Gifts of the Crow a little bit more because we had more right. of these stories. And um, the interesting thing, I tried to delve into this a bit as a scientist, right? And so how yeah. we form memories and how we respond to stimuli, often we are responding to things that happened a little while ago. I mean, multi, you know, fractional seconds before is what our brain is actually it does a lot of filtering and processing and then we react to something and you can see that if if a kid or a ball rolls out in front of you and you're driving you slam the brakes on and you don't even know you've put them on until a, a fractional second later right so there's this delay what i think happens mm -hmm. is that that delay kicks in and when we see something or interpret something it's colored by our past <clears throat> we have this 
long association through culture of ravens and crows with death. And so mm -hmm. when we see something unusual and it's associated with death, we, we remember that and it conjures up these memories and links them basically in our brain so that that person who had just, um, you know, lost a husband or a wife or a friend remembers very clearly, oh, yeah, I just saw three crows before I went into the hospital, which was one of the stories we had. And that right. became salient for them because they have in their memory banks this association. And so it becomes more salient and important and memorable. Well, that's totally understandable. There's nothing mystical about that. Yeah. No, and I think that's what happens. I don't know about the one, the crow that came in and walked like around. It's like deja Tony's. vu. Deja vu is apparently a recycling of synaptual. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's okay. triggered by, by this stuff. interesting um, observation associated with a very memorable event, the loss of somebody near to you, right? These are things that make you go, yeah, hmm, yeah. And this well, is how the movie starts, Dave. <laughs> yeah, but you know what, Ray? How about this, uh, how about this explanation? If you have right. a sentient creature that has theory of mind, a, a raven or a crow that looks at you and you look back and you see there's someone in there and it looks at you and knows that there's someone in here, if that bird appears at, at a time in your life of, of tragedy, you're going to look in that eye and you're going to feel something rather yeah. than a, a robin or, or Right. We apply meaning to it. Yeah. yeah. We apply exactly. meaning to exactly. it, perhaps. And, and, because and... you feel the interaction <clears throat> and you feel the meaning. And there is something undeniable about the I'm just presence. being a scientist here, dude. <laughs> well, I, but no, I, I'm agreeing that you there's something undeniable about the power of the, the just the, the very, the visage, the look of a raven and a crow is compelling. It speaks to us in some sort of emotional level. And uh, especially in these really hugely emotional moments in our life. Yeah, you read into it. Yeah. yeah. It can, no, I had an experience. I, I, I've heard a lot of mystical raven and crow stories myself. Yeah. It's been a lifetime. I had an experience. And John, I want you to uh, comment on on uh, something similar, but probably more, more uh, wilder than mine. I was dropped off 150 miles south of Alice Springs in the Australian desert. And at the time, I was a smoker, and I had a pouch of tobacco for the week that I was there. And we went out on the first day, a little trip, came back, and a bunch of our camp had been kind of uh, rearranged and couldn't find my tobacco pouch anywhere. So I immediately quit smoking. <laughs> I was forced to. But this raven kept appearing every day about the same time that we would leave for our little jaunts in this tree and go, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> and I kept saying, where's my tobacco? And he kept saying, ha, 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 ha. So the question to you is, I'm sure you must have many stories of them seeking or planning revenge. <laughs> yeah, and stealing things. I mean, they steal things like crazy. They'll dig into packs. They'll unzip uh, snowmobile pouches oh, yeah. and steal things from them. And the tobacco was probably something that, that seemed interesting and soft and maybe something they could they could eat. Or we've learned that with tobacco that birds will use it as an insecticide in their nests. So maybe it recognized, uh, you know, the, oh. the utility of this uh, item it found and, and used it. Or maybe it was, uh, you know, the public health uh, campaign to get, <laughs> to get people to quit smoking and train ravens to steal their tobacco. So... Either could explain it, but it's not an uncommon thing for them to 
in this case, you know, the coming back and laughing at you is pretty interesting that it, it might have been rubbing it in. Yeah, well, that's what I'm really talking about. I felt like he was teasing yeah. me. I mean, he, he taunting, would come back. Taunting. To, yeah, taunting uh-huh. me. Yeah. yeah my, my guess is he was coming back trying to get more of something. Right. You know, of something. And, sure. And interacting with you that way might might force you to drop something or to step away and he or his mate could sneak in and, and grab grab something. Right. Right. Distraction more than rubbing it in, I would say. Right. Or interaction. <laughs> I mean, again, like Ray said, these animals yeah. do seek us out. They do uh, engage with us. And that's one of the ways by the noises they make and by the postures. And we read into those postures and noises, things that are familiar to us. And it may or may not right. be the case, but it's um, it's compelling nonetheless and causes us to think about And I, I, I feel a uh... Uh, kind of a debt to these ravens now in that, uh, you know, if I was ever a jerk to them one day, I think they would get real hip to it very quick, you know. So I've always been very kind to them. And, you know, I kind of try to avoid the seagulls so that they see me as a friend. But, yeah, I just I'm afraid that like then I realize, wait a minute, they're adjusting my behavior now. So, yeah. Crows and ravens are doing okay with human populations just going off the Richter scale, they've adapted to us so well that they are actually thriving, or crows are? How are ravens doing? Ravens are also thriving. Uh, they're increasing hundreds fold across the Western U.S. Um, there mm. are campaigns to limit their numbers. Um, we've been actively uh, participating in trying to educate people that just killing the raven doesn't really accomplish anything. And what you really need to do is clean mm. up the environment um, if we want to reduce this population growth, uh, clean up the environment from the resources that they so readily exploit, everything from our garbage to our water treatment facilities mm. to picnic grounds, whatever it might be. Uh, and the reason is of a concern is because they're also generalist predators uh, that take, you know, uh, young desert tortoises that are endangered or uh, up in your country, the Stellar's Eider chicks that are endangered. Um, and so there's concern about them spreading into places they weren't really very uh, abundant historically by things we do to the environment, food or nest structures that we provide. And um, those are the things we need to limit and own up to the reason they're doing well is because of us. And just, you know, pulling the trigger on them isn't the way to solve this problem. Hmm. We never discussed their natural predators really quickly. Uh, hawks, eagles. Great horned uh, owls. Other ravens. Great horned owls. Yeah, goshawks will take ravens. Great horned owls will, are probably one of the, the most serious predators because they get them at night when they're roosting. We've had several of our uh, birds in Yellowstone taken by owls at night. And um, yeah, otherwise Ooh. humans uh, led in the environment and, of course, just uh, shooting. Right. You can legally shoot crows in the United Lower in the United States. There is a hunting season in most states for them, yes, which um, mm. doesn't really exclude ravens from being shot either, even though they're not supposed to be. Right. Well, you have admitted that you are a uh, bird nerd and kind of sort of a bit of a paleo nerd, but if you could actually time travel, John, I don't know if you ever really thought about this, but if you could go back in time, is there any interest in a particular period of time and what would you want to see where when would you go to i'd want to go to the pleistocene because yeah, i'd like to see yeah. some of the ground sloths and woolly mammoths and and things like that and the dire wolf 
and and ravens interacting with those ravens and condors must have just had the heyday with these big megafauna in, in north america uh, in particular mm -hmm. but even across europe so when did they appear in the fossil record the ravens and crows uh 10,000 years or so ago for the crow in north america we know uh genetically backtracking that ravens would have been around for uh, about 4 million years yeah they go back i was looking at uh, corvids go back to the miocene mm -hmm. thereabouts so it's after the dinosaurs but uh, do the ravens and crows come in from asia into north yes. america is yeah that... they're the center of songbird evolution is you know australia new zealand and then moving up through uh asia across to uh to russia and um mm. and basically crossing beringia uh, at various times, depending on the habitat in Beringia at the time, whether it was forested for jays or steppe-like uh, habitat for ravens. So they came across that way. You're a uh, professor. You're currently teaching? Yes. I've been ranting about the lies of propaganda on social media. I feel like a broken MP3 file. Um, I was going to say broken record because... <laughs> Ray can relate to that. Um, as an educator, John, what advice can you give us lay people on how to combat disinformation in our digital world? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a difficult situation with students uh, that we see, you know, basically getting all of their information from social media. And that's so influenced by who's saying the information. So I, I guess my advice would simply be to check your sources carefully, you know, be a be a. Um, skeptical consumer of information like a scientist goes through anything we get we think twice about it we double check it with as many different angles as we can if you see something that's really crazy sounding um you know get another source on it and check and make sure personally i go to trusted sources uh, and, and i don't yeah. use social media for my news but but so many people think fox news is a news organization when it's really an entertainment company mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I guess there's nothing to say about that, <laughs> is there? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to say other than um, recognize who's giving you the information you're receiving. And everybody who gives you information is going to have some bias. And, you know, there are professionals trained to reduce their bias in how they convey information. And those are professional journalists. That's what they're trained to do. And there are individuals that are trained to be skeptical about what they hear, and those are scientists. And um, it doesn't mean that you won't get valuable information from other sources, but I'd want to I'd want to understand their bias in um, in accepting it and reacting to it, especially. You've been working with university students for decades now, and uh, working with master students and PhD candidates too, I yeah. assume. Um, but you also, I was looking at your Facebook page, you are on social media, and I see that uh, you're doing a crowdfunding thing for a, a crow watching for, for kids yeah. app. What's, what's yeah, that? It's... So you go to a younger audience. What's that? What's that well, about? Well, this was brought on by um, a game developer and children's author in Seattle. They contacted Colleen, my wife and I, hmm. and um, they said, hey, let's do a kid's book on crows. And this was right at the start of the pandemic. And we're like, well, that seems like a, a lot, but we'd like to do something that could get kids uh, engaged with nature now when when they don't have a lot of group 
activities and school activities to and get a lot them. of free time. They've yeah. got a lot of free time. Their parents are looking for things to have them do in a structured scientific way. And I also get a lot of emails from kids that are doing science fair projects or whatever, and, you know, want advice on what to do and how to collect data. And it's like, I can't give them all what they need. So this app kind of was born out of our discussions and it's a way for kids to go out and even you know, adults, um, there's lots of vocalizations in there. Uh, there are categories of behavior that we readily see. And you go out and you basically do a scavenger hunt when you see a crow, or you could do it with ravens and record what they're doing. And and this app... What's the name of the app? It's called Crow Scientist. And it's Crow available Scientist. on all the platforms and where you get your apps? All the platforms and no charge. Fantastic. And basically allows you to go out and gather behavioral data and it'll even do some of the analyses and, you know, put together uh, a repertoire of behavior for the birds you watch. All right, I'm going to get it today. Yeah. Let's uh, end this, gentlemen, but let's take a screenshot first. Do you have a skull oh, right. or anything? Uh, you can uh, – I've got a uh, – hey, John, I think this is uh, – I thought it was a turn. Found this at the beach. I think it's a gull because of these grooves. Mm. Don't know about the grooves on that, but it's something with big eyes, that's for sure. I know the beak yeah, looks sure pretty is. thin. Yeah, it does. It looks like a uh, a turn, but uh, I, I, turn. I did some I did some research and uh, couldn't find it. But anyway, uh, do you have anything to hold up? A uh, tattoo or a, Hang on. Uh, a crow? A stuffed crow? I might have one or two. <laughs> a crow corpse. Oh, oh, he's got a a, a, a mask. Oh, look at that. Uh, this would seem uh, more appropriate. Oh my God. There you go. Okay. Five, four, three, two, one. Great. Hey, John. Thank you so much for joining us here today on Paleo Nerds uh, and uh, hearing about my strange uh, raven experiment uh, going on. It was fascinating. My, Just yeah, absolutely totally fascinating. fascinating. My pleasure, gentlemen. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you, John. We'll see you uh, uh, the rebound. All righty. All right. Thanks, John. Well, that was so so cool. Did you learn anything about your raven crow interactions? A any insight? You know, well, I don't feel like I'm messing with the ecosystem so much. I feel like I'm actually doing some, you know, quasi real citizen science and I'm doing a good thing. I'm, uh, you know, so I feel good about it. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so how much am I paying you for this grant? <laughs> uh, it's called, I'm literally working for peanuts right now. Actually, the the crow. The Is that ravens. what you're feeding them? You're feeding them. Are you feeding them peanuts or chicken? Uh, peanuts. Now I ran out of chicken thighs and thought, wait a minute. So, actually, you know what? They really, really, really like my what? my my wonderful wife Michelle. Every now and then, will uh, treat us uh, to pancakes in the morning, and right. they really love pancakes. So it's kind of cool. They, they seem to prefer sourdough pancakes too. So so they're kind of garbage animals, then, what? right? They're opportunists. They're going to see. I feed them some good stuff. They really seem to like the peanuts, though, too, because it's a little bit, bit of a challenge, you know. But I also realize after a while I'm making kind of a mess down there every day. So Oh, with the shells? Yeah, with the shells. They crack them oh, right they're over. biodegradable? Yeah, yeah. I hope they're unsalted peanuts. They're out, they're, I make sure it's unsalted. So. Is it true? I, I heard, I don't know if this is true or this is um, one of those cultural myths that don't throw rice at a wedding because the pigeons eat it and then it fills up their stomachs because the rice expands and then they all die. Yeah, I know the people. What do they throw instead, instead of the rice? Uh, 
Birdseed. 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 Ah, yeah, that's I, great. I think that's what they do. All right. Yeah. Then the pigeons get it, uh, but uh, but is it true about the rice? Is if a bird eats a bunch of rice, it fills up their crop? And I they... don't know. I don't know. Yeah, man. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe they should throw <laughs> peanuts. Then the ravens would be happy. But uh, no, it was really great of John to join us and uh, University of Washington professor all these years, author of a lot of great books, and he works with artists yeah. on his books too, which is cool. Yeah, that was great. Really, really enjoyed that. If you enjoyed the episode, what do you want to tell our, our listeners, Ray? Send us fan mail because we need encouragement. <laughs> <laughs> no, we just want to hear what you think. We want to hear what you like, what you didn't like, who we'd like to, uh, who you would like us to interview, and uh, any any uh, interaction from you would be awesome. Yeah, uh, people can uh, send us an email via the website, and uh, we uh, appreciate any of the feedback. But you know, I. I I'm a sensitive guy. Just try to couch it in nice terms if you're going to cri <laughs> criticize us. But yeah, we've been getting lots of uh, emails uh, so far and su great suggestions. And uh, hopefully people will enjoy this one where we took a little bit of a detour. But, you know, birds are dinosaurs. We need to just really yeah. drill that into folks' heads. And actually, it was really interesting to learn from John that pretty much the bird community, the ornithologists, have uh, accepted the dinosaur origin now. Yeah. Birds are dinosaurs. Yeah, but we could probably still find an iconoclast or two out there that might dispute that. So the fact well, we should you know have what? one on. We should have one on. I was sometime. just thinking, why don't we have we should have one of those guys and a creationist <gasps> and uh yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah, we should <laughs> oh. let's get down and dirty, Ray. Oh, I, 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 I'd like to have a real scientist, real scientist. So, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, Anyways, well, it's been, uh, it's, it's great weather here. And I've learned here in Ketchikan that you've got to enjoy the good weather when you have yeah, it. Yeah, so you better so, go out and enjoy those uh, ravens mm -hmm. in, in your they're, forest They're waiting there. for me. No pancakes today, just peanuts. All right. And I'm working for peanuts, so. All right. Well, over and out, Dave. Another great episode. We'll see you next week. Yeah, goodbye from Ojai, California, land of the oak chaparral and beautiful blue mountains. Ah, that's such a nice description, man. I'd like to visit there sometime. I've not been to your town, but you've been here. And I'm speaking to you from Ketchikan, Alaska, where it's beautiful and rainy out today. Beautiful, rainy, sort of rainy, whatever. It's a nice day. I'm going to go out and feed the ravens. See you, Dave. All right. All right, Paleo Nerd. Bye. Thanks for being a Paleo Nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. Really?